co-host Lee Kunle, and today we have a bit of a reduced crowd. We have only, well, not only, we have Nathan Radke joining us. Hello, I'm here. I'm insulted. I know. I I should have thought that through a bit uh, differently. But anyway, we don't have Elena Papianis. But for all the Elena heads out there, she will be back. Yeah, it was not because of the Illuminati podcast we did last time. No, no. So don't worry about that. A little bit of inside baseball. This isn't our day job. We're professors. That's right. And sometimes piles of marking build up so high that they just sort of topple over on us. And so Elena right now is trapped in She's her She's digging house. herself out of some marking. She will, be, she will be back for part two. Oh, she'll be back. Because that's right. This is only part one. Yeah. So what are we talking about? We are going to, well, we're eventually going to talk about whether the moon landing actually happened. That is a classic conspiracy theory. Yeah. But to get there... Uh, we have to start a lot earlier. We have to start with something called the Cold War. Oh, boy. This is like my favorite thing to talk about, I think, with conspiracy theories, because just having something to do with the Cold War makes the weirdest conspiracy theory slightly more possible. I have been shocked by how many things happened during the Cold War, where the Cold War was the justification for projects, nefarious activities that are just... Unbelievable. I mean, MK Ultra. Yeah, MK Ultra, which eventually we will do a podcast on. Yeah. Exploding cigars, trying right. to kill Castro with exploding cigars. That and was I th- real. I think we still owe the listeners a podcast on that. That was oh. promised way back in one of our first ones. Yeah, that's the problem. We keep promising them and then not fulfilling them. This is the first one because I was listening to one of our old podcasts and I realized that we had said we would do a podcast on the space race. Okay. And here, here it is. Go. This is it. But first, it's two guys talking about a war. Yeah. Well, not a hot war. No, a cold war. Ice cold war. What made it cold? So that's an interesting term. It's a technical military term where a hot war is exactly what you think about when you just say a war. It's soldiers using arms of some sort and trying to kill each other such that one side wins and the other side loses. But after 1945, uh, we have entered into a radically new situation in world history. We have discovered and built bombs that are so big that they can no longer reasonably be used. Well, not in any kind of sort of restrained fashion. Basically, if we're going to have a nuclear war... That's a war that everybody gets to be a part of. That's right. Uh, Mostly civilians. Yeah. And that introduces a real problem when uh, trying to do traditional kinds of war. If your enemy has a bomb, a weapon that is so dangerous that it would kill most people in your civilization, in your society, you may really need to consider whether it's worth having that war or at least having it in that traditional way that wars were generally fought. Yeah, because, I mean, after 1945, for a brief period of time, the Americans were sort of sitting back and relaxing, thinking, we've got the atomic bomb, no one else has the atomic bomb. That's right. We've got it made. Well, We're going to be, like, comfortable and relaxed forever now. 
And that lasted for, I believe, two years. That's right. And then we had an, a whole nother conspiracy, which is part of the Cold War. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, uh, oh, spies yeah. for the Soviet Union in the United States, passing over to the Soviet Union instructions and plans on how to build a nuclear bomb, putting the Soviet Union a good decade ahead of where it would have been if it had to figure this stuff out on its own. And ruining the party for the United States. <laughs> yeah. And... This is, in light of what gets developed later, uh, in terms of thermonuclear weapons, which are different, the hydrogen bomb is different from the quote-unquote traditional nuclear bomb, it is an order of magnitude worse. You can now, with the hydrogen bomb, kill a million people in one go. And that's with one bomb. That's with one bomb. And of course, they started building up massive stockpiles of these bombs. Exactly, because... One of the problems was there is no defense against a thermonuclear hydrogen bomb. There is no reasonable defense. The solution that the American policymakers came up with was something with the acronym of MAD. My favorite acronym because it, it just applies to this theory so well because it, it does seem mad. It seems ridiculous. Well, what does that even stand for? Mutually Assured Destruction. I mean, this was literally the policy of the United States dealing with the Soviet Union. Looking back on this, I mean, it's amazing we're still here. The argument was, we need to build up our nuclear weapon arsenal such that it is just simply an impossibility to attack us. Because if anyone did, we would assure everyone's annihilation. Yeah, like this is a podcast, so you can't see. But Lee and I right now have guns at each other's heads, as, right. as we almost always do every time we're podcasting together. That's right. And making unbroken eye contact the entire time. <laughs> it's very awkward. But if I fire my gun, the last thing that will happen before Lee dies is that he will involuntarily pull his trigger and shoot me. There's no way for me to shoot Lee without Lee shooting me, and there's no way for Lee to shoot me without me shooting him. And so for Lee to attack me causes his destruction and vice versa. So in a weird way, we're both safe? So safe. I mean, right? how could we feel more safe than this? <laughs> I think that's a brilliant analogy. And that is literally, well, no, it's not literally true, but that is figuratively exactly what uh, the situation was with the Soviet Union and the United States. It was even to the point where there was a fail-safe, you know, the people were thinking about fail-safe mechanisms. What if the Soviet Union manages to do a sneak attack we need to have fail-safe mechanisms such that even if all of us and our government is destroyed, we're still going to be able to blow up uh, the Soviets. Yeah, like a kind of dead man switch. Yeah. So that even if there are no Americans left, there will be some kind of automated process that just automatically happens when nuclear bombs go off on soil. One of my favorite movies by Stanley Kubrick problematizes this, where both sides develop something they called a doomsday device. They forget to, or they don't notify each other about it, and they both sort of get activated, in a sense, accidentally. And you can see how these mechanisms really could have just run out of control. There was a weird internal logic to them. But if you look at them from the outside, you say, well, this is just madness. Like, That's what are, right. What are we doing? It was literally that acronym, Mutually Assured Destruction, was madness. And you, you mentioned Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I would highly recommend that if anybody hasn't seen it and they're curious about what the Cold War was like. I recommend Dr. Strangelove, and I recommend one that came out at about the same time. It was less comedic, 
but still very powerful called Failsafe. Oh, I haven't seen Failsafe. Failsafe is okay. It just guts you. The ending of it just makes you. It just makes you turn off the film and look out the window for a while. It is very powerful. Wow. Okay, so that's the setup that sort of tries to explain why it was a lot more complicated after 1945 and certainly in the 1950s when the Soviets had developed a nuclear bomb to have a traditional hot war. Oh, uh, one thing that we should probably explain, why were they so mad at each other? Oh, dear. <sighs> now, okay. That, Very briefly, why were they so mad at each that other? That gets complicated. So the, the Soviets... Oh, how, how quick do we want to do this? There's Super a quick. Russian Revolution. Yep. This, the, the, that puts a new leadership in charge of the Soviet Union after 1918. By the Second World War, the Soviets are on the side of the Allies, that is the side of the Americans and the British and the French against the Germans. They're a, a, a crucially important part of the World War II war effort. Yeah, they're probably the reason why Germany lost the war as quickly as they did. Yeah, I mean, they, they really took a huge toll as well in terms of their own casualties. But already during the war, the other Allied forces, I guess what I would call the Western Allied forces, were quite suspicious of Stalin, quite worried. They were worried about the political system, uh, anti-democratic, repressive. They were worried about its expanding nature. It didn't remain uh, confined to the borders of Russia. Uh, it seemed to be sort of spreading. Uh, the notion of infection was used a lot in the 1960s to talk about the threat of Soviet communism. And one of the motivating uh, factors in all of this was that the Soviet Union, like other countries, was how to put this, trying to create satellite states that mm -hmm. would be friendly to their interests in terms of trade, in terms of military alliances. And the West was deeply afraid that the world was falling. And there's a lot of quotations here because I'm trying to give this the This is from the American perspective. Exactly, of that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea was, the threat was the world was going to uh, fall victim to communism, which equaled uh, police repression, uh, political prisons, no democracy, and certainly no capitalism. And this was seen as an existential threat to, again, quote-unquote, Western civilization, democracy, uh, capitalism, and all the core values of the American uh, political body at that time. So on a bumper sticker, capitalism versus communism. Exactly. There we go. Capitalism versus communism, democracy versus dictatorship. Mm -hmm. um, and they had communism and dictatorship, and we had capitalism and democracy. You know, I think to some extent we can maybe belittle or smirk at these ideological positions. But sometimes the way I describe it to my students is if we're walking down the street and we see somebody being somebody who is really, you know, weaker than the person who's beating them up, getting beaten up on the street, what's our responsibility here? Do we just walk away? Do we just say, well, you know, whatever, it's their problem? Or do we try in some way to intervene on behalf of that person who's getting beaten up? I'm not necessarily saying you got to break up the fight, but you try. I think many of us would feel obligated to intervene. Sure. I, think, and, I mean, the Soviet Union did expand their influence to places like Czechoslovakia. And exactly. they were trying to get into Yugoslavia. Yeah. And uh, Afghanistan in Afghanistan, the 80s. Afghanistan, of course. Now, that's not to say that on the American side, they weren't also pulling some like outright shenanigans. Oh, sure. This is again Central a, America. Like, oh, yeah. There's some catastrophic 
effects of the American government in Central America. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to resist promising a podcast on some of the CIA actions in South America, but there's a lot to look into. We there. should do one just on a United Fruit Company. Yes. Well, when we did one on Iran-Contra, oh, which yeah. uh, did cover a lot of that. So you can yeah. go back and look at previous episodes. But to go back to my analogy about, you know, what is your responsibility? What is your responsibility as a state if another state is, you know, going and occupying and victimizing a whole bunch of people. And I'll, actually, I'll refine that question. What is your responsibility as a powerful state? That's right, a powerful, free, democratic state. And so the Americans argued that their role in international politics was ke- to keep world communism at bay, hopefully destroy it, because it genuinely was an existential threat to, to everything. Essentially. I mean, if you really go right down to it, that's what they were saying. But the problem is, you can't actually have a war with them because they got these weapons that are too strong. So how do you fight them? The answer is the Cold War. Yeah. And so they tried to find basically any method of fighting that didn't involve a Soviet soldier and an American soldier coming into contact and actually having a fight. That's right. But anything beyond that was fair game. So what are some examples of like weird arenas for Cold War fighting? The Olympics. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This idea of, hey, if our guy runs faster than your guy, then that means that our system must be better than your system. That's right. Because look at how fast our guy is. That's right. So there was like rampant cheating and sure. politics. East Germans who were part of the Soviet system are renowned for having, you know, seriously doped all of their athletes in order to, you know, succeed. But if we think about in other arenas of kind of sport or games and strip competitions here in Canada that that hockey series in the 1970s is legendary oh yeah um it actually goes by a certain name of course I'm not a big enough hockey fan to know Paul Henderson scored the winning goal in that one right and here this is again a kind of proxy war our system versus your system the um Bobby Fischer versus Spassky right chess chess thing there was chess wars yeah the art world Oh, you, you have some good examples here. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, so there was a movement in the 60s in the United States, the sort of very, very modern, sort of abstract art movement with uh, artists like Splatter Guy. Who's Splatter Guy? Uh, Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock, who, if you don't know his work, he would sort of drip paint in an artistic way over giant canvases. I think Splatter Guy really captures it. Yeah, I mean, Splatter Guy, I'm sure, is how he was known to his friends. <laughs> and his work continues to sell for a fortune he's considered extremely influential but what we didn't know at the time and what he didn't know at the time was that the cia in an attempt to show the world that american art was better than the soviet style of art the cia was secretly bidding on his paintings and the paintings of other similar artists in order to inflate the prices so that the world would say oh american art is more expensive than soviet art ergo capitalism must be better it's a better system um, so we had the art world, we have the sports world, chess uh, world, chess world. I mean, there's espionage, tons and like weird espionage, not just the uh, spies and stuff and not just like, like top secret illegal reconnaissance flights, but of course, uh, just ridiculous, bizarre things like project Stargate, which we talked about in an earlier podcast. That's, I think our first one. I think it was. Yeah. And can you remind us again? That was psychics yeah, <laughs> on psychics, both ends. <laughs> like trying to use ESP, trying to like use telekinesis to murder people from a distance. 
and like bringing Yuri Geller into Ben Spoons at people. I highly recommend listening to, the, to that one if you're interested in just how nutty the Cold War can get. And you made a really good point in that episode because you were saying that both sides sort of tricked each other or tricked themselves into pursuing this. So the Americans at first are not interested, as I remember. No, they were pretending to be. Right, they were pretending to... cover to... up some secret uh, radio technology that they had. And then the Soviets are thinking, well, if they're doing ESP research, there must be something there, so we better get on it because there might be this ESP gap. Right, and then... Later, like a generation later, the Americans discover the Soviets are doing this research and they start thinking, oh... Uh -oh. <laughs> ESP must be real. So yeah, it's ridiculous. There's disinformation. Yeah, oh yeah, disinformation, which we've also done a podcast. That's on. right. And there, and I think this is an important one, there were proxy wars. Yeah, this one's not as amusing. No, proxy wars are where one country, say, either supports militants or dissidents, or themselves is actually in the country fighting. So Vietnam is often seen as one of these... Well, it wasn't entirely a proxy war, but it, was, it wasn't a direct conflict between the Soviet Union and America. It was a conflict between America and the Viet Cong, the Viet Cong being communist, being supported probably by the Russians and stuff like that. So you could fight them. It was the battleground of will, this, will Vietnam become communist or not. So it becomes this battleground of the Cold War on the condition, though, that you don't actually engage your real enemy. Right. At no point will an American fight a Soviet right. because that will be the, the end of all things. Of course, in the Korean War, which was an earlier version of that, mm. which was another proxy war, there were actually times when secretly North Korean fighter jets were being piloted by Soviet pilots. But uh, of course, you can't tell. Right, 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 right. That's interesting. So Afghanistan, which we mentioned earlier, was then another one of these kinds of wars where the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And of course, the Americans started funding a resistance movement in there. And we should stop talking about that because that opens the door to a whole different Yeah, podcast. I'm going to get all worked up if we get into that. But the main point remains, they want to fight. They can't fight. They're finding every way possible to fight. And one of the most expensive one of the most dramatic and one of the most public ways that they were fighting was the space race. Wow. So the space race, part of the Cold War, makes sense within the context of the Cold War. Yeah, because it, I mean, it had all these elements to it. It had a technological aspect. It had like a sort of a courageous fortitude kind of aspect. Uh, it was very public. It could be done in the public eye mm -hmm. because it wasn't something like espionage, which you have to sort of hide away. You could, you could like triumph your successes. Right. I think maybe another point here is that, I mean, what is the space race? What, what is the technology there? It's rockets. Yeah, which is so close to <laughs> missiles is, that... Exactly. I mean, if thing. you can put uh, some astronauts uh, and get them from Houston, Texas to the moon... You can sure as heck get a nuclear weapon from whatever Washington to Moscow. Yeah. And vice versa. Oh, for sure. And from, I mean, this isn't as legitimate, but from a Freudian perspective. Oh, dear. <laughs> these great big rockets. Look how big it is. Look how big our rockets oh, are. You dear. can show them off. That, that isn't probably, although, I don't know, maybe there is an aspect to that. But 
I mean, did, did the Soviets even have a chance here in the space race? I mean, when I think about America in the 1950s and I think about the Soviet Union in the 1950s, images that pop into my mind are for America, leave it to Beaver, white picket fences and nice cars, highways and airplanes. When I think of the Soviet Union in the 1950s, I'm thinking... Uh, Big, long lines for very few commodities. Bread and potato is what you're going to live off. Weirdly, I'm always imagining it in black and white. And sure. everybody's miserable. Yeah. Did they seriously stand a chance? I mean, did they even have anything going in the 1950s in well, the space race? Certainly, America had an advantage because World War II wasn't held in America. Right. Whereas That's World a good War point. II was held in the Soviet Union. Right. Okay. And their, their cities were destroyed mm. and the population was massacred. Whereas America, uh, other than Pearl Harbor and a couple balloon bombs that had been floated over, America was basically untouched. Mm. But the Soviets did have a real advantage in the space race. And weirdly, it was the same advantage that the Americans had. And this is something that we talked about earlier, uh, but we're just going to mention it briefly. If you're interested in it, you should listen to our podcast on uh, post-war Nazi conspiracies. The Americans had an operation going on immediately following World War II called Operation Paperclip. And the Soviets had their own version of it. Exactly. And Paperclip, very, very quickly, was just... Because Hitler had been so obsessed with weird super weapons and technology, the Germans had spent a fortune on science, including some stuff that sort of, I would say, ventured into like cartoonish mad science. Mm -hmm. And so there was a ton of scientists who had been working on some pretty weird things. Uh, but one of the few successes they had was in rocketry. And so there was a lot of German scientists who were very adept with rockets. And after World War II, both the Soviets and the Americans grabbed as many of these German scientists mm -hmm. as they could and brought them back to their own countries. And maybe I could give a quick shout out here to one of our uh, sources that we rely on quite a bit. Annie Jacobson has written a book on Project Paperclip. And I don't know, I mean, I find her work has been very informative, even though I'm not going to go on record saying I agree with everything she says. I find her work quite informative. She's definitely worth reading. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and fun fact here, talking about the Germans and their rockets, they, as according to my research, first people to send something into space. Oh, yeah. I, I think it was a... It was a V2, wasn't it? It was totally by accident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if it counts. They did not mean to send it into space. Hey, it still counts. <laughs> if you accidentally eat another human being, you're still a cannibal. You're so, oh, good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Operation Paperclip is sort of got a horrifying aspect to it because a lot of these scientists, not only were they experts in rocketry, but they were, like a lot of them were, actual Nazis. Mm -hmm. Of course, not everybody in Germany was a Nazi. Not all of the scientists in Germany were Nazis. But a lot of these guys were genuinely hardcore Nazi. Mm -hmm. And uh, three of the most uh, famous ones, Werner von Braun, of course, yeah. Nazi, uh, who had been uh, operating a factory to produce V-2 rockets. Mm -hmm. We should say what a V-2 is. It's, it's basically the first intercontinental ballistic missile. And they were using them to fire at London. Mm -hmm. Ernst Steinhoff, another rocketry guy, another Nazi, and one of the worst ones, a guy called Alberta Strughold, who's considered the father of space medicine, hmm. who spent World War II experimenting on unwilling human I subjects. See. So these are terrible people. Yeah. But for the Americans, they're like, yeah, these are terrible people that are going to help us in this race against the Soviets, so That's right. come on in. Well, and given that it was the threat posed by 
nuclear annihilation was the end of humanity as such. Stakes are high. Exactly. Then, you know, maybe you can look the other way is what maybe some people in the government thought when they brought over these guys from uh, through Project Paperclip. Yeah. I understand the reasoning. I don't agree with the reasoning, no. but I, I can, I guess I can understand it, but I feel like those guys should have been sent to a fair trial. Right. And then punished in a reasonable way for their very unreasonable acts. But to get to get you an idea of how influential these German scientists were in the space race, in 1947, a couple of years after the end of World War II, America sends fruit flies into space. Oh, yeah? Yep. They, as far as we know, they're the first animals to get sent into space. Oh, darn, I thought it was the Soviets who sent the first animal into space. Well... Yeah, we'll come back to that. I mean, fruit flies are that are not that impressive an animal. No. Like, they didn't even have little helmets for them or anything. They just, like, <laughs> put them in a jar, I think, sent them into space. And, of course, they sent them into space on a German V-2. Oh, uh, okay. Same year, the Soviets are launching experiments in space, and they're launching them on, on a V-2. German V-2s. Right. And so that's one of the advantages the Soviets had. They had grabbed a lot of these Germans. Right. Uh, and actually, the Soviets started doing far better than the Americans did. Uh-huh. By the time you get to the 50s, it's look, like the Americans are taking a lot of L's. Right. The Soviets are really bringing it. So so like what? What have the Soviets managed that, you know, the Americans have not? October 4th, 1957, uh, the Soviets managed to get into orbit, which is harder than just getting something into space. Mm-hmm. Like to get into space, shoot it up, falls back down. Technically, mm-hmm. that was in space. If it goes higher than 62 miles up, you are in space. Okay. But on October 4th, they're able to launch a tiny little satellite called Sputnik 1, and it goes around the Earth uh, 1,440 times. There was nothing to it, really. It was just sort of a ball that went beep, beep, beep. Mm-hmm. But what it represented, it was like a tiny little piece of the Soviet Union that was flying over America, right. and America couldn't do anything about it. It yeah. was just like beep, beep, beep. That little and, beep, beep, beep was like a flipped middle finger to America. Right, because as, as far as I know, you could actually pick that up on ham radio. Yeah. This was a frequency that civilians would be able to tune into. And so there was this reminder that, yep, the Soviets have done something the Americans haven't even started thinking about in a way. As far as I know, it caught even the CIA completely by surprise. Yeah, People were shocked. The Soviet government even told people, hey, here's the frequency. Right, okay. Because they were proud of it. They were like, sure. ha there's a little bit of the Soviet Union over Kansas right now. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it didn't actually pose a threat. Like a little beach ball-sized satellite going beep, beep, beep is mm-hmm. not an actual threat, but it's what it represented. Well, and I'm sure it's not that many steps from a small little thing to a small little thing with a camera. Yeah. to a small little thing with a bunch of cameras. And now suddenly you've got things flying over the United States that can take pictures of secret military facilities, of uh, bombing ranges and airplane pads and whatever else you might want to know about. Yeah, because you can catch a spy, you could shoot down a plane, you could not do anything about a satellite. Right. It was just going around and around. And if you could put a camera in it, you could put a warhead in it. So chalk one up for the Soviets. First little tiny bleepy thing in space. Beep, beep. Chalk two up for the Soviets, because then on November 3rd, same year, 1957, they launched Sputnik 2. Now, it's specifically launched to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the October Revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody who's listening carefully might say, why was it launched in November to coincide with the anniversary of the October Revolution? Oh, dear. Yeah. This gets a little complicated. There's a reason for it. Yeah. Different dates. Yeah. We won't. Different calendars. 
But the important <clears throat> thing is that this isn't just a little beach ball going beep, beep, beep. This is a living thing that they have sent into space. And this story... A little sad. It's a little sad. Because that living being that gets sent into space on November 3rd is a little stray dog. Mm-hmm. A little mutt, a little stray dog from the streets of Moscow named Leka, which means, I think, Barker. <laughs> cute. Yeah. And she is cute. You can oh. see pictures of her online if you if you just... L-A-I-K-A. Is that right? Yeah. She's an adorable little sort of terrier mutt. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I feel like if it had been an American dog, they would have sent some kind of expensive, purebred something into space. Why do you think the Soviets specifically said we're sending a mutt? Did they? they, Yeah, they specifically said a mutt from the streets of Moscow. That's who's going into space. So was this some kind of proletarian, you know, we are workers and we can just do it the same way as anybody else? I think that's part of it, right? Because it's like, hey, even like the lowliest of Moscow dogs is actually higher than any animal on Earth. Uh, The other reason, which is a bit more scientific, is they thought if it can survive as a stray dog in the streets of Moscow... Good point. It could probably do space. Good point. And 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 it did. Yeah, I mean, it did make the space. The official story was... Uh, that Leica gets launched into space. Uh, She orbits uh, for nine days. This is the official story. Orbits the Earth for nine days. And then she is put to sleep very gently and she dies painlessly. Uh Because since they were rushing to get this into space for the anniversary, they had figured out how to get her into space. They had not yet figured out how to get her back from space. And so she just orbited for a while and then was put to sleep. And that story in itself is pretty sad. Mm -hmm. The actual story is worse. Mm -hmm. Because the actual story is she was launched. She did make it into space. She maybe made it around the Earth a couple times. And then there was a failure of the cooling system. And the the capsule became intensely overheated. Oh, no. Yeah. And she basically boiled to death. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's interesting. Like, she was a victim of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And I think this story sort of shows that tension between being caught in these elaborate systems that seem to justify themselves and run themselves and like the individual people who are part of that. Mm -hmm. Because when you read accounts of the individual Soviet scientists who were doing this, it tells a very human story. Yeah. Uh, They were told they weren't allowed to feed the dog to keep it as light as possible. Okay. But because she's a dog with like dog face. Yeah. It's hard not to. And they were sneaking her treats and stuff. Sure. Uh, one handler, a guy called Vladimir Yazovsky, he actually snuck her home a Aww. couple days before the flight so she could like be comfy and she could get right. scratches on the head. So it's it's all pretty sad. And then uh, after after it turned out that she had died, uh, and then it became public, and it didn't become public until the 80s or 90s, mm-hmm. this story, uh, one of the scientists came out and he said, here's the exact quote. Passes, the more I'm sorry about it. We shouldn't have done it. We did not learn enough from the mission to justify the death of the dog. That is a sweet and insightful comment that I wouldn't have expected. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would have thought, well, just a dog. Part of the Cold War keeps us safe, whatever. Yeah. But I guess it's hard when you're working with this dog every day and it's looking at you with its dog eyes. Yeah. And you're like, we're going to murder you in the most expensive and elaborate way possible. <laughs>
Okay. These are all jokes back when Leica was launched. These are jokes that appeared in the New York Times. I have not heard any. Yeah. I am here for genuine human reaction. That's right. So all of the laughter that's about to come from Lee is legitimate. He, he has not been prepped for these. Okay, here are the jokes. Although it was reported that the dog was a husky, it was suggested it might be an Airedale. Because air. Yes. I, yeah, I, okay, that's bad. get it, but it's... I mean, it's a stretch even to... It's terrible. It's not funny, but it's a stretch even to make the analogy work. Okay. Terrible. Okay, this one's also terrible. Some persons felt that the second satellite puts the United States deeper in the doghouse. Dreck. It's dreck. And here's the last one. It's the worst one. One might have to be careful about saying, it's raining cats and dogs. Oh, my goodness. Awful. All right. Now, that's two for the Soviets. The yeah. first bleaky, blinky thingy, and then they got a dog into space. So they got the maybe not the first living thing, but certainly the first complex animal. I mean, we're starting to pave the way for humans into space. Surely now it's time for the Americans to send someone up there. Yeah, you would think, because they were clearly losing this, but they had a more interesting plan in mind. Uh-huh. So it's 1958. Sputnik's gone up. Sputnik 2's gone up. The whole world is starting to say, oh, this communism is looking pretty good. Right. Like, what have the Americans done? Right. Very little. And so in the Air Force, they come up with a plan. And I would love to have seen a transcript of when they actually came up with this plan. Because this is what must have happened. There must have been a bunch of Air Force officers, like high-level personnel, sitting around in a room somewhere, discussing the fact that they were losing the space race and they had to do something really impressive. And one of them, and we don't know who it was, must have said something along the lines of, gentlemen, what if we nuke the moon? Wow. Not what I expected. Really not what I expected. I mean, what is, is that really the first thing you come up with here? Uh, you know, I guess when you're losing, it's like, well, we got to do something. They sent up a dog. And a beach ball. So let's let's nuke, nuke the, the moon. moon. This, okay, hold on. This sounds so preposterous. We got to give people some kind of link or something where they can verify this information. Where are they going to be able to go? Because I worry sometimes. If <laughs> when I hear this stuff, yeah, I can't it's like, believe it's oh, true. Now we sound mad. Yeah. Well, I have in front of me. Nathan really is holding like a hundred-page document. Yeah. Declassified. Is it De- CIA? Declassified uh, from the def- Defense Documentation Center. Uh, this is base. This is Air Force stuff. This isn't CIA stuff. Okay. We'll put a we'll put a photograph up on our Instagram. Okay. Of the cover of this, it is a huge. A document. Air Force Special Weapons Center. Air Force Special Weapons Center. They've got a nice logo that has, it looks like a rocket and like a nuclear explosion and a little sign for an atom. Mm -hmm. And it's a study of lunar research flights, volume one, by a guy called a rifle, appropriately enough. And so these documents indicate that it was a serious consideration by the United States now, did they want to set off a nuclear bomb on the moon, or did they want to blow it out of the sky? Well, they weren't going to blow it right out of the sky. We didn't, I mean... <laughs> I'm starting to get worried here. Yeah, let, let, we'll take it back down to Earth, so to speak. We didn't have the capacity back then. We don't really have the capacity now to destroy the moon. Okay. All this would be, and in fact, the rocketry that they had available to them, they couldn't even send a very large nuclear explosion up. It would have been about the size of the bomb dropped on uh, Hiroshima. Okay. I mean, and to say that wasn't a very large nuclear explosion 
obviously it's right. still a nuclear explosion, which, which is could, huge, which is huge and could destroy an entire city. So here's what happens. So Dr. Uh, Leonard Rifle gets approached by senior Air Force officers, those guys who I hypothesize must have been in that room yeah. thinking of this. And they say to him, listen, we want you to fast track a project. Basically, they needed some kind of scientific justification to explain why they would send a nuclear warhead to the moon. So they're like, can you think of any possible reason, any possible gain we could make scientifically right. to excuse the fact that we want to blow up a nuke on the moon? And we couldn't say, for example, well, we want to show the Soviets that we're better. No, I mean, that was the reason why yeah. they were doing it, but you couldn't say that was the reason. Okay, so you had to come up with some plausible story, well, maybe not entirely plausible, but some kind of story that justified it on what, scientific grounds or something? Yeah, and he definitely tried very hard. Uh, when you read this paper, he's like, well, I guess some dust will get launched into the air. Maybe we could learn something about dust, I guess. Or <laughs> if we put down some some other probes first, then we can measure like earthquakes and stuff. Okay. But it's, it's clearly an attempt to just sort of justify something the Air Force wanted to do for completely symbolic reasons. Right. And that symbolism would be, hey, we're in the space race too. And by the way, we got really big bombs. Yeah, because imagine how amazing that would be. You could just tell the Kremlin, hey, listen, guys, look up at the moon at like 1130 Moscow time. Right. And they'd look up at the moon and then poof. Because a key part of this was you had to be able to see it from Earth. Right. And so they were going to detonate it in a place that like it would capture the sunlight and it would be sort of halfway between the, the, the side that faces us and the side away. So it would be sort of silhouetted there and it would have just been oh, magnificent. If it hadn't been raining in Moscow. That's something I wondered too. It's like, <laughs> imagine if it's cloudy and like, oh. We, we'll do it again next year. We you really guys... did. We really did blow something up on the moon. Honest. But they didn't do this, did they? No, they didn't do it. Uh, it was canceled in 1959 because they were... Because somebody must have said, this is insane. Okay. Like, this is a ridiculous idea. What if, like, half of our rockets crash? And we're going to put, <laughs> oh, like... that's a, a good point. We're going to put a nuclear warhead in one and try to send it to the moon? What if it lands somewhere else? What if it blows up on the launch site? There that's... are so many bad parts to this and so few benefits to it. Okay. Now, so, so right now our tally is two for the Russians... Uh, nuking the moon, I don't think that would I don't know if that give you a point, a... even if you managed it, but they didn't. If anything, it's a tie because the Soviets also had a version of this called Project E4. Oh, dear. Which was at the same time because uh, obviously they had gotten wind of this and it's like, well, we can't have them nuking the moon without us nuking the moon. <laughs> so, like, I can't tell if I'm impressed by our ability to be able to do this because think about the intelligence that goes into... Right. Like being able to hit the moon at all. Yeah. Like with, and I mean, think about the equipment they had back then. They were basically looking at like slide rules. And yeah, you were, you, I mean, you, you're barely using calculators at this point, right? Yeah. I mean, these equations have to be done by hand. By hand. I'm so impressed by the intelligence and the ingenuity of all of this. And it's also so stupid. Yeah. It's a weird combination. Uh, interesting side note. I'm going to show Lee uh, one of the front pages of this report, a study of lunar research flights about Project A119 to nuke the moon. And look at the name that I've circled here as somebody who's been working on it. Oh, wow. Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan. The Carl Sagan? The Carl Sagan worked on this project. 
Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, most of our listeners probably know who Carl Sagan is, but he was, uh, what, in the 80s? The uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson of that generation. Yeah, He brought cosmology and and astronomy and physics within the grasp of non-specialists in a really compelling way. He did an early kind of science uh, TV series. He was also an author of a science fiction yeah. book, wasn't he? Uh, I think, yeah. Con- Contact? Contact, with, which, which was made into a movie. Which was made into Foster. a movie. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. This wow. is like one of the most famous scientists. Now, he, a, was, he was a kid back then. Okay. And so they hired him, uh, Rifle hired him as a kid. And actually, this is the reason why we know about Project A119, because Sagan was applying for a scholarship at university. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, what have you done? It's like, well, I was part of this project to nuke the moon. And then when somebody in the 90s was researching a bi- for a biography on Sagan, and they were going through all of his like applications and stuff, oh. they were like, wait, nuke the what? What the what? And so then after that came out, in 2000, Rifle himself came out. Okay. And he said, yeah, okay, it existed. It was really dumb. Just let's all pretend this didn't happen as a side note this is actually sometimes how stuff becomes declassified it gets found in some obscure place where nobody thought that say we had to classify carl sagan's you know university application and some reference is noted and then you know the cat's out of the bag and often that way is when the government will say okay we're going to release this information now which which is amazing and it makes me wonder like what else is out there that we just haven't lucked into yeah. That we haven't just sort of stumbled over. Everybody check behind your couch cushions. Yeah. See if there's some secret CIA information we don't know about. Okay. But now, honestly, Nathan, they're going to, the Americans are going to send people to the moon. Yes? Now. Okay. All right. Enough with this moon nuking and stuff. Now the time has come. Oh, wait. Not yet. Because the Russians sent up Sputnik 1 and then they sent up Sputnik 2. And then... You're not telling me they win again. They win again. Ah. So now it's like 3-0-1 for the Soviets. Yep. Uh, because they send the first human being up. Oh, okay. And this is Gagarin. Yeah, Yuri Gagarin. Yuri Gagarin. Uh, this is... Russian a, cosmonaut. Yep, Russian cosmonaut sent up in... 1960, wasn't it? I think 1961. 1961. Yeah. So Kennedy is president now. Yep. And, okay, and the Russians are just... Beating the Americans in the space race, left, right, and center. Yep. The Americans have sent, so far, they've sent fruit flies. Yeah, they've sent fruit flies. The Soviets have got... <laughs> On a German V2 rocket. Yeah. And the, and the uh, Americans are just sort of sitting there while Sputnik after Sputnik goes over their country. Here's a weird side note, which doesn't have much to do with anything, but it, it was a story I came across and I didn't know what to do with. Mm. So I was like, ah, we'll just talk about it. It's happening just before Gagarin gets sent up. There is a weird message being broadcast from space. There's something in space that's broadcasting in orbit around the Earth that's broadcasting down to Earth two very strange messages. One is choral singing. Mm -hmm. Now, the chances that the Soviets have sent a choir to space. (laughs) At this point, it's almost believable. Maybe, maybe. Why not? (laughs) And the other thing that's being broadcast down is a recipe for borscht. Well, I mean, that makes total sense. If you haven't tried borscht, it is delicious. It is delicious. I, I do actually like borscht very much. And then on March 25th, 1961, in a Soviet town called Perm, uh, an explosion is heard and something falls out of the sky 
and uh, lands sort of some distance from the town. And so the people of Perm all get together. They form like a rescue squad. They know that there's space experiments going on. So they think maybe this is a fallen cosmos. We got to go rescue, okay. like go rescue this guy. So they, they fight their way through the snow and through the debris and they get to the capsule. But it turns out that uh, the person in the capsule is not a human being at all, but just a crash test dummy that had been in space broadcasting coral singing and borscht recipes. Apparently, they were so frustrated when they got to him and realized it wasn't a cosmonaut that they had risked their life to rescue, but a dummy. Apparently, they began to punch it in the face. Right. Well, okay. Uh, and I didn't know what to do with that story. What What are you going to do if a dummy falls out of the sky into your community and you try and rescue it? Okay. Yeah. I'll I mean, give him a buy on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe the borscht recipe was good. <laughs> uh, but... Apparently, the reason why he was broadcasting borscht recipes and things like that is because the Soviets had started to get very worried. The Americans started to uh, put out the the conspiracy theory that there was a lot of missing cosmonauts, that a lot of cosmonauts had been killed in space mm-hmm. experiments. Okay. And so the Soviets knew that this, this, this test that they were sending into space might not end well, so they didn't want people thinking there was a human on it but they were trying to test the microphone and the transmission, so they had to send something. So they deliberately sent the borscht recipe and the choral singing so people wouldn't actually think it was a human that had crashed down from I space. I see, I see. So the Soviets were concerned that these rumors that cosmonauts were being lost were spreading around, and so one of the unfortunate side effects of that is when they genuinely lost cosmonauts, they kept it quiet. Okay. And there were some terrible accidents. Uh, a 1960 launch pad explosion killed about 120 people oh in the Soviet Union. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea about that. Uh, and also in 1960, a cosmonaut called uh, Valentin Bondarenko was killed in an oxygen-rich test environment. Oh, the Americans had a similar uh, disaster that killed three astronauts, right? Absolutely. Where they were in the... Um, for a test in the... in the Sorry, in the uh, shuttle, which was... Uh, had pure oxygen, full of pure oxygen. There was a spark. Yeah, Apollo 1. Apollo 1, thank you. Uh, which resulted in the deaths of Gus Grissom mm-hmm. and uh, Roger Chafee and Bud White. Bud White, well done. I was yeah. totally drawing a blank. And what makes that tragic is that if the Soviets hadn't hid the fact that they had lost somebody in one of those oxygen-rich environments... Mm-hmm then the Americans maybe wouldn't have had to lose their guys. Oh, that's an interesting point. Because it was the point. same mistake. It was the same mistake, yeah. If they had been working together, like, they could have avoided tragedy. If they had been working together, they probably wouldn't have bothered to go in the first place, that's right? That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, touche. And all, by the way, all of this was covered up. All of these these deaths were covered up until Glasnost in the 1980s. Right. And for anybody who doesn't know what Glasnost was... So this is part of um, Mikhail Gorbachev's loosening of political economic restrictions in the mid-1980s in a way uh, to sort of revitalize the Soviet Union, to make it a bit more, not, not democratic, but a bit freer. More um, open. More open. More transparent. Uh, it was a way also of trying to re-legitimize the government in the eyes of a lot of people who, uh, you know, the Soviet Union in the 1980s was struggling uh, in part because of the result of the arms race and just the amount of money that they had to spend. The war in Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan's going badly. 
they're not doing well in the 1980s. And, and one of the things to try and soften the impact of bad economic times was Gorbachev's attempt to sort of loosen up societal restrictions. And one of the and political, s- sorry, one of the side effects of this, because the Soviet government had been lying to its people for so long, I came across this little bit of information that I I had to research very carefully because it just sounded like a joke. Okay, but apparently it's true. In 1988, in the Soviet Union, they had to cancel history exams, and they had to cancel history exams because of Glasnost. All this new information was coming out. Oh dear! Basically, all of the textbooks that people had been using were worthless. Right. Because they were filled with all of this fake information, right. propaganda. And so by 1988, it had become so absurd. It's like, well, we can't even have history class anymore <laughs> because our, our, we've, our books are too full of lies. Right. Which is extraordinary. And it sounds like one of those 1980s like Russian jokes. Right. Yeah. Like, in Soviet Russia, exam yeah. takes you. <laughs> so uh, I guess that's another part of the Cold War was yeah. jokes. Terrible, sure. terrible I mean, jokes. anything, right? Going back for a second, and I guess this is sort of getting us to where, finally, where we can actually start talking about the Apollo 11 conspiracy. Okay. And so, that is, just to put everyone in the picture, that's the moon landing conspiracy. Apollo exactly. 11, that's the shuttle that takes Buzz Aldrin. Okay, we'll leave it at Buzz Aldrin for now. Um, and crew mm-hmm. to the moon. And Neil Armstrong. Or does it? Yes, that's right. Of course, Neil Armstrong is even more famous. Yeah. Who remembers Buzz Aldrin I and forgets know. Neil Armstrong? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Now, this is an important part of, of all of this story. What we're going to do now is we're just going to end this podcast and lead into the next one about, about the moon landing conspiracy uh, by talking about the motivations for going to the moon at all. Mm-hmm. So here I have excerpts from Kennedy's speech to Congress, May 25th, 1961. This is defending the massive expenditure of cash that was going to be needed to do this. And you would think, okay, what is the excuse to go to the moon? You would think it would be like exploration sure. or scientific advancement. Didn't he say something like, it's difficult and therefore we should do it? Yeah, which isn't a very good argument. But it, it, it does sound like this American bravado, you know? It sounds like we are the country that does things because it's hard. Sure, and, but like I had a friend who could take the insert from a pen and stick it into his oh nose. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not saying it's a good so idea. So that it t- touched the back of his mouth, and that's hard to do. <laughs> But we don't need to do that. That's amazing. Uh, which of us does a better Kennedy impersonation? Oh, definitely, definitely not me. This is gonna okay. Here we go. All right. So this is Kennedy. This is me doing Kennedy speech to Congress, May twenty fifth, nineteen sixty one. These are extraordinary times, and we face an extraordinary challenge. Our strength, as well as our convictions, have imposed upon us this nation the role of leader in freedom's cause. There is now going on around the world a battle between freedom and tyranny. The dramatic achievements in space that have been made in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure in the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Now it is time to take longer strides. Ooh, I butchered strides. No, you're doing a great job. You've missed your calling. What calling is that? Kennedy impersonator, clearly. Okay, here we go. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe this nation should commit itself to reaching the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period 
will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. Huh. So he seems to be saying, why are we going to the moon? Because we got to show the world we're better than the Soviets. And it really is the last thing left, right? Yeah. I mean, Mars and Venus, they're too far. Too You're far not going to get there. And mm. everything else already has gone into space. Some of them have even come back. Yuri Gagarin came back from space. He did. And was killed, sadly, later on in a, uh, I believe, a MiG-15 crash. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, this is it. And not only that, he's saying, we're going to do this before the end of the 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, he gets assassinated. Mm-hmm. But the official story is 1969, at the end of 1969, like a real buzzer beater, uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, the much more famous of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and others. Uh, touchdown on the moon, and he gets out, and he steps down on the moon, and he says, this is one small step for man, this is one giant leap for mankind. But the question that some people have is, was that, in fact, faked? Now, that's why we did all this background, because if you ask that question, it's like, well, why would they bother faking the moon right. landing? All the stuff we're talking about today, that's sort of the motivation to fake it. Okay, so this is interesting in the sense that, sure, America could have spent billions of dollars in 1960s money to send a couple of guys to the moon. But, I mean, now that I think about it, you're right. Wouldn't it just be cheaper to make it look like you sent them to the moon? If 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 this is really just about PR against the Soviet Union, if this is just about making us look better than them, well, as long as people believe we went to the moon, isn't that good enough? Yeah, that's the argument. Huh. So I didn't realize there was a solid argument here. So we are going to have to deal with... We're going to have to actually look actual, into this conspiracy. Okay. And also, uh, as we're recording this, last week, I don't know if you... Uh, one of my students told me this, and I didn't realize it. Last week, uh, a Russian official, because of course the Soviets are gone, but a Russian ofi- official hinted at the fact that the Russian government is going to launch some tests to see if the Americans fake the moon landing. Really? Seriously. So there are people who take this conspiracy... Seriously, that yeah. this is a real thing. And we're going to take it seriously. Of course. And we're going to break it down and we're going to look at all the premises and we are going to come to a conclusion at the end of the next episode, did the Americans land on the moon? Stay tuned. In the meantime, of course, we can be found on Instagram. On Facebook. On Facebook. And if you have any questions, we're going to start doing uh, email episodes. Hey, we have an email. We have an email. Not only do we have an email, we've got a cool email. What is it? Podcast at theuncoverup.com. Podcast at theuncoverup.com. That's very legitimate. And there you will reach Elena, Lee, and Nathan. That's right. So if you have any questions about anything, please email us. And at some point, once we get enough questions, we'll have an entire episode uh, where we answer those questions. And if you are one of those chosen few, we will read your code name out on the air. So they have to send code names. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nobody would use their real name on a no. conspiracy theory podcast. No, 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 no. <laughs>